Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, January 8th, 2024. On the show today, news and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim tells us how Disney has developed the California Screaming Roller Coaster over the years. Let's get started by bringing in the man who now understands that throwing the ball in the stands after a championship is not necessary and wishes everyone in his bowling league a speedy recovery. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I, I am doing well, Len. And and, and now mind you, I want to stress here that was a candle pin bowling championship. Are, are you familiar with candle pin bowling? These are the, tiny ones, right? You know, tiny. Yeah, the, the, these, the, this is the variation of the game that's played in the Canadian Maritimes and here in New England. Uh, uh, features a handheld-sized ball and tall, narrow pins that, that resemble candles, hence the name. And uh, interesting variation, uh, you get, you know, when you're playing candle pin, you, you get three balls per frame and rather than two. And let me tell you, Len, when the power goes up here during the cold New England months, and by the mm-hmm. way, we have a storm coming in this weekend, those candle pins are really hard to get lit. You know, I mean, you know, I... I <laughs> They're all in pieces. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, just I, I typically go through a bunch of cigarette lighters before I can finally get one to fire up. Well, good luck this weekend. It, uh, it's nice to hear that you've got something to do in case the power goes out. There you go. There you go. Are the candles lit when you're pulling them? No, but but now that sounds like an extreme sport, doesn't it? I, but you know, anything to get coming on, on ESPN two. <laughs> there you go. So. All right, Jim. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at Patreon.com/slash/JimHillMedia including Jeff Wagner, Troy King, Tony the Disney Dad, Bill Wangreen, Lockie Mason, Thomas Rogers, Sal Monardo, and Catherine Thomas. Jim, these zoologists at Disney's Animal Kingdom have instituted a new educational program at the park to help explain how to identify all the different species of animals located around the park. For example, Catherine suggests that if you're in Dinoland near Restaurantosaurus and trying to decide if you're looking at a crocodile or an alligator, just say, see you later. And if the animal doesn't react with alligator, it's a crocodile. True story. It's called I, the stimulus response I, cycle, Jim. Look it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, what you'd say to the lemurs. You know, it's like, all right. Anyway. Exactly. So. All right. On to the news. Folks, the news is sponsored by touringplans.com, which can help you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right. A couple of quick things uh, just to sort of close out the holiday. There's talk uh, online about how holiday wait times at Walt Disney World were much higher in 2023 than 2019. That might be true for posted wait times, but as everyone that listens to the show knows, there's a difference between the time Disney says you're going to wait in line and the actual time you spend in line. So thanks to our own Becky Gandolin over at Touring Plans for looking at actual wait times over the holidays. So if you look at uh, 2019, the average actual wait in line was just under 33 minutes off of a posted wait of 43 minutes. In 2023, however, down from 33 minutes uh, to 27 minutes for actual wait times. And the interesting, yeah, so that's good. So posted wait times in 2023 Mm -hmm. were about one minute higher on average, maybe maybe three quarters of a minute higher than 2019. But if you look at the actual time spent in line, it was much lower. So that means that posted wait times were overstated more in 2023 than in 2019. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with this data and the analysis that Becky did um, for a couple of reasons. One is, for all of you math nerds out there, uh, you know it's one thing to say that two numbers are different, but really the thing you want to look at is the confidence level and the confidence interval, mm-hmm. which tells you how comfortable you are in, uh, in making that assertion. And in this case, the 95% confidence intervals for both of those sets of numbers do not overlap which means uh, we're very, very confident that they're definitely different. So that's good. Wait times weren't bad. And we're not reading anything into the fact that the, the posted wait times were inflated, right? But, you know, I mean, it's just, it was, it's such a small difference, like eight tenths of a minute, you know, or seven tenths of a minute. Yeah, that's, that's noise at that point. Okay. okay. The one thing that I think that was, is interesting to look at is this, the actual wait time in 2019 Mm-hmm. was 77% of the posted wait time. Okay. In 2023, the actual wait time was 62% of the posted wait, which means the posted waits were less accurate. Mm-hmm. One way to look at that is to say, well, you know, I definitely waited less, so that's good. The problem is, and that, you know, I, I think I've said this before, but maybe not in a while, is 
inaccurate information means you can't make the best decisions about how to use your time. That's that's why we constantly harp on the difference between actual wait times and posted wait times. If you don't have good information, you can't make good decisions. And that's that's what we want. There you go. Uh, some other interesting news. Now, this is looking forward to Jim. Tomorrow, January 9th, Tuesday, park hopping and the dining plan return to Walt Disney World. Let's talk about park hopping first. Okay. So there's a couple of things that I'm interested in seeing. One of them is, does it increase the number of guests buying the park hopper option for their tickets? So you and I talked a couple of shows ago about how the percentage of guests adding that park hopping option to their tickets has decreased in 2023 versus 2019. And that prompted our friend Chris to write in and say, yes, indeed, I used to hit three parks in a day, but the 2 p.m. rule made that impractical. So I stopped buying the park hopper option. The other thing, and the one that I think is super interesting, in talking with cast members who came back to work mm-hmm. in 2024, one of the things that we're hearing is Disney hasn't seen this kind of strain on their bus system since Ooh. before the pandemic. So some guests are going to want to start park hopping around late morning when the bulk of Disney's bus fleet is still going back and forth between the hotels and the parks. And I'm not sure that they have enough drivers Mm -hmm. to cope with that demand. So one thing that I expect to start happening, like literally within minutes of us finishing this podcast, Jim, is Disney's going to start promoting the heck (laughs) out of the health benefits of walking everywhere. Like, (laughs) like, you know, this walk to Epcot brought to you by Skechers, you know, also Skyliner boat, monorail options, minivans. I'm, I'm expecting all sorts of like FYI and informational things Mm -hmm. to start coming out about that. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, oh, no, I, I I think you're definitely on to something here. I'm going to be fascinated. It's a beautiful morning for a jog over to the studios. <laughs> yeah, holy cow, though. I hadn't even thought about that. You know, just, um, wow. Okay, going to be fascinated to hear the stories coming out of the resort in the coming weeks, especially anything related to transportation. Yeah, um, and it's also going to be the tail end of Marathon Weekend. I know people... Uh, People got in early, but for those of you that are making, you know, this the first big vacation of 2024, mm-hmm. yeah, let us know how the bus system does for you. Okay. And thoughts and prayers with you. Ah, <laughs> exactly. Go. Good luck. Godspeed, go. okay. John Glenn. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing we mentioned, the Disney dining plan returns tomorrow. So some things to look for there. Um, will dining reservations get harder to find at the one credit restaurants and easier to find? at the two credit restaurants because people are always looking for value there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's some early, 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 and I wouldn't even call it an indication. It's sort of like a hint that that may be happening um, because there are places like, uh, like artist point that are, have all kinds of availability once the dining plan returns. The other thing I'm interested in, and you know that our people are all over this, what kind of loopholes will exist to get the maximum value out of the dining plan? I was talking to Christina uh, mm-hmm. over the weekend because she's been yep. looking at the updated menus and talking to uh, Disney food and Bev people who are just now getting an insight into how all of the rules are going to work. And Chrissy has a two night stay starting tomorrow where she's going to use the dining plan and test out some of these loophole ideas that she's identified. So she's already found a couple of excellent things to test, but we're going to let her break that news this week. And then maybe we'll have her on the show next week to discuss. Cool. Cool. Can't wait. All right, Jim. Also, uh, Laurel and I were on the Disney Wish over New Year's, and it's the first time that I've been on the Wish Mm -hmm. since you and I did the Disney Dish on the Disney Wish trip back in September of 2022. Mm A couple of highlights. Um, Mm -hmm. DCL seems to be strictly enforcing the time, the port arrival time that they tell you to get to the port. So if they tell you that you're going to start boarding process at 2 p.m., it's going to be pretty close to 2 p.m., like 15 minutes either way. I would suggest not arriving at the port until 1.30 at the earliest. The downside to that is you really don't know how traffic is going to be getting to the port, right? Like Mm -hmm. one accident puts you off by an hour. So there's some sort of, you know, leeway there. I would still suggest getting there early in worst case scenarios. um, You're waiting outside undercover, but there's bathrooms and stuff like that. So it's fine. Yep. Mm -hmm. Once you actually start the boarding process, it seems to go really, really fast. I got to use the platinum line which only had one group in front of us. So I, we were on the ship inside of 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an improvement on the old system. Mm-hmm. Once we were on the ship, um, Laurel doesn't like to eat in main dining rooms. So we skipped all of those. Mm-hmm. We did have an excellent dinner at Enchante, which is their fancy French restaurant on night one. So I had the standard menu because uh, I'm basic like that. 
And mm-hmm. uh, I had some really interesting uh, still waters. Uh, Laurel admirably decided to uh, order the seasonal truffle menu with the mm-hmm. champagne pairings. And Jim, this is the thing that I would recommend to anyone who's mm-hmm. going on, on the wish over the next couple of weeks. It's uh, it's truffle season right now. It really is the best option. The highlight, the highlight, and it was one of the best pieces of restaurant food I've ever had, was this thing the chef called truffle focaccia. Okay. So it was the shape and the size of a muffin, but with mm-hmm. the lamination of a croissant and flavored with butter and truffle. The And it's kind of funny because like the outside was crispy. And when Laurel opened it, the inside let out that little tiny puff of steam like you see in food commercials. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was amazing. Cool. Oh, wow. She, she okay. let me have like one, a bite of like one tiny corner and it was delightful. And then after that, she gave me that sort of look like, don't come near me. I barely know you. This is my food. There we go. Okay. You want a fork in the back of your hand? Just try <laughs> exactly. it, pal. You know? Exactly. Okay. And I think, you know, overall, uh, the Wish has the best food in the DCL fleet. I like Enchante slightly more than either uh, Remy on the Dream or the Fantasy. I also think, and you tried this too when, when we were on the Wish, the pool area food, like barbecue and tacos, are options that don't exist generally. Yeah. on, Or they either don't exist or they're not generally available. But I really like them on the Wish. I think those are great. So we ate there a bunch. Okay. Also, when the uh, Wish launched, and I think this is one of the things you and I looked at. There, remember there was a lot of talk when the Wish first came out about how the pool deck layout was different than those on previous ships and people were sort of like not, against it. Not, yeah, not enthusiastic. Yes, I remember hearing that. Yeah, but after, you know, running around those decks on the second cruise, I've, I've come around to liking it, especially the pools um, that are, for back of a little better word, on the mezzanine level between decks. The change in elevation makes the views more interesting. There's a minor inconvenience of more stairs, but I think overall it's a plus. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Also, the uh, the adults area on the Wish seems to be much larger than on other ships. There's plenty of quiet space to find. Like our cruise was completely full, and as you can imagine, over Christmas break, lots of kids. Um, but yep. the adults in the adult area seemed super happy with the um, with that area. So that was really good. The one downside that I would say is the Cove Cafe, the coffee place, mm-hmm. is farther aft on the ship now, which means it's less crowded, which is great. Mm-hmm. If you like that sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. or bad, depending on how you like your coffee shop. So, anyway. okay, okay. Mm-hmm. we uh, I gotta have to give a quick shout out here to Nathi, who was our uh, barista for the trip. He looks mm-hmm. like he's 16, Jim, but has sailed on every Disney ship since 2012. I, I again, I'm guessing <laughs> child labor laws on the open seas are different. <laughs> uh, I think the phrase you're looking for, Len, is indentured servant. Yeah. You know, <laughs> So I did. Uh, I did get a chance to try the uh, the Rainforest Spa on the Wish. I was joking with you before the uh, before we started recording that the last time we were on the ship, we were doing so much, we had so many activities with with you know listeners that I didn't even know what deck the spa was on, let alone you know get a chance to experience. But this time I did, which was great. Uh, I I I like the Rainforest Spa on the Wish a lot, uh, even more than the Dreamer of the Fantasy. It seems larger, has a great little outdoor area to complement the indoor space. It also has, and this is unique for me, you know, like um, spas typically have saunas. So there's a steam room and there's a sort of like a, a hammam room, which is not quite as hot as the steam room and maybe not as wet. Um, but this one has a chilling room to go along with the hot sauna. So it's cold. And that's really refreshing. I mean, number one, it's going to be refreshing if you're cruising the wish during summer. But even then, like, you know, when I was, I would go from like the uh, the heated stone lounger's into one of the saunas, then pop into the cooling room for a nice little effect. It was nice, yeah. The heated stone lounger. I know. Yeah, I know. You're up in New England. You're getting ready for your foot of snow. And I'm like, you know, a yeah. heated stone lounger would be great right now. Would, would. The, uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting was, you know, the spa has this outdoor area, but it closes at dusk while the rest of the spa stays open. And I was mm-hmm. asking why. And they said, well, it's right below the bridge. Mm-hmm. And the lights at night from the spa would interfere with the cruise view of the ocean. Oh. Ooh. I know. I know. It was really, yeah, really good. Yeah. yeah. yeah good. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what else was fun. Uh, we tried most of the bars on the ship. I don't think they're as good as mm-hmm. on the Dream of the Fantasy. You and I have talked about Hyperspace Lounge. I yeah. think it's under-themed. That should have been one of the smash hits of The Wish. And it just, it, it feels like, you know, a Star Wars fan's, you know, under-budgeted rec room. I mean, it's just, right. I don't, yeah. I just, that, that's I don't a understand what happened there. 
it needs more oomph. The skyline concept on the Dream and the Fantasy, I think, is is better. It's not uh, as technical or as elaborate, but mm-hmm. the theme is way more cohesive and immersive. So I think, um, you know, as Disney looks forward to the treasure and the you know the Jungle Cruise bar and the Haunted Mansion bar, I hope they stuff it full of things. And the thing I'm looking for here on a ship is I want Trader Sam's, right? That level of detail and immersion. The only downside of that is no one would leave. Well, so in Hyperspace Lounge, they're limiting people to one drink or 45 minutes, so that's fine. I, uh, I'll do that. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, that, that, that might explain the underwhelming theming. 25 minutes in, you're like, yeah, we can go someplace else. The, uh, the other uh, group that I have to uh, point out when it comes to bars is the cast members at the, or the crew members at the Keg and Compass, which is mm-hmm. the sports bar. Uh, mm-hmm. They jumped into action when the NFL feed on Sunday afternoon cut away just after the 1 p.m. games began. Mm-hmm. And I was... I happened to be sitting next to the control panel where they were working, and I heard one of the crew members say, we're not supposed to do this, but I think it'll work. Mm-hmm. And it worked. And that, <laughs> my dear friends, is the true spirit of a sailor. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to try a half hitch, see what happens. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. The uh, the other theme bars, like the Bayou, uh, you know, they're surrounded by pedestrian walkways. And look, when I am enjoying a glass of champagne, I want to be sitting in a soft velvet covered chair in a pretty room with the melodic sounds of Edith Piaf floating gently by. Like that's my ideal sort of champagne bar setting. I do not want to see you or hear Barry from Kansas City walking by in his short shorts asking his wife where he put his rash cream. Okay, because that's not, yeah. that's just going to take me out of the moment. And you're not wrong about the bayou. It, it it literally, it feels like it's on the runway at O'Hare. There is yeah, so much it's, traffic Walkways on both sides, yeah. It's yeah. just not great. Yeah, it's not yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, there's, I, I think there's a lot to like on the wish. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, hopefully the feedback like this gets mm-hmm. back to the Imagineers who are designing the next ship and that we make some adjustments there. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, one last thing we were on deck 10 or two last things. Sorry. We were on deck 10, which I liked a lot. Uh, it was just off the forward elevator banks. It was easy to get to the upper decks and I think everything else was a quick trip down the stairs. I don't know if I've told you this before, but Laurel's cruise habit is to always use the stairs on the cruise, not the elevators. But I think that even the elevators are too much work and that a junior cast member should piggyback me to my activities. <laughs> well, now, just a, a quick note here, because I don't know if you used the elevators during our Disney dish on the Disney Wish event, but they it became, you'd get a couple days in and you'd realize that if you made the mistake of backing up against the control panel for the elevators, it would yeah. then set off all the floors that, that know, seems were... to be fixed good i, I okay. specifically tried it yeah <laughs> okay and when cool. i say specifically That's... i mean it inadvertently but yeah it didn't uh it didn't work yeah okay yeah We're good to hear so yeah the uh, the other thing that i did was uh we ran the 5k at castaway key i hadn't run this since before the pandemic uh you still get medals for finishing the big difference now and this is for people who haven't run it in a while is that it's not a ship organized event so you show up whenever you want you run however you want and then at the end, there's a cast member that has medals, and you can ask them one for one at the finish. So, okay. Overall, really relaxing trip. Um, I really like the new internet packages that you know that are not you know, priced by the gigabyte or whatever. So, yeah, overall, super relaxing trip. Uh, weather was pretty decent the entire time. Really enjoyed it. Uh, looking forward to the treasure. So, cool, cool. All right, on to listener questions. We've got time for a couple. David sends in some highlights from his mid-December trip. He writes in and says, "I was the planner for our seven-person trip." I also suffer from anxiety that I generally do a pretty good job of controlling on my own and that it doesn't impact my daily life. But oh my God, knowing that the mm-hmm. parks will be busy, setting an alarm for 6.30 a.m. and then knowing I need to buy Genie Plus, grab lightning lanes for the time we want was a lot. Mm-hmm. I didn't sleep well and almost threw up a couple of times. I hope the system changes before our next trip. Anyway, uh, but David writes in to say this. We bought tickets to Drawn to Life after hearing the ad read on the Disney dish it's the first time I've ever purchased something from a podcast ad. Oh, and the show was outstanding. I think it's my favorite Cirque show now. We went on Thursday night to the 5 p.m. show and the theater was about 80% full. Uh, highly recommend it. So that was, uh, and also he says, uh, our recommendation to visit the Magic Kingdom on party nights was excellent. So that was a very nice letter, David. Thank you. I mentioned this too for a couple of reasons. One, because Cirque is sponsoring the show. But Laurel and I were walking around Disney Springs yesterday and even like midweek in between holidays, that show was packed. Face it, it was a long time 
you know, reinventing Disney Springs and all of us kind of bore the brunt of it, but I, it seems to have paid off. I mean, you know, just, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how busy that is, you know, uh, you know, 24 seven these days. Yeah. I also got a chance to, uh, to try a couple of new places at Disney Springs. One was eat the, uh, the Indian restaurant, which I love, love, loved. Chrissy didn't have a great experience when she went there on opening day, but I'm going to chalk that up to uh, to opening day jitters. So it's basically Indian version of Chipotle, right? Okay. So like rice or salad bowls with meats and sauces, you know, sides of breads. Delightful, relatively inexpensive, not a long line to get in. But I think the one thing that um, is going to be a little bit of a challenge for them is mm-hmm. that it's way, way, way back in the Marcus side part of Disney Springs, like back behind Earl of Sandwich. Wow. Not a high traffic location, but mm-hmm. definitely worth a trip, especially if you like Indian food, which is kind of difficult to find outside okay. of maybe Sanaa in Disney World. Yeah, really good, relatively expensive. Everything was prepared right. Spice levels were, I would say, appropriate for the general public. You can ask for it to be spicier, and I did, and it was delightful. So yeah, very good. Cool. The other place that we tried was um, Summer House on the Lake. Just went in for cookies and coffees. The pastries that we had were, were fairly standard. I mean, it was completely packed every time we tried to get in for a meal. I'm going to try and hit it up next week. We'll see what happens. Okay. Let us know. Another uh, listener email, this one from Mandy, who wrote in uh, about our comments on the prices from our review of the uh, 1970s era blue bio menu at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim, you'll recall this is the one where you could get a filet mignon for five bucks and change. Yeah. <laughs> okay. God bless America. So Mandy says, uh, you know, the prices charged for the meals might om- be almost equal when portion sizes are considered for, con- mm-hmm. for today's conversion. The smaller amount that people ate back then was simply routine, not mm-hmm. often to, quote, watch our waistlines. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, Mandy's right. For reference, I read an NIH paper by Dr. Lisa R. Young and Dr. Marion Nestle from mm-hmm. the American Journal of Public Health titled The Contribution of Expanding Portion Sizes to the U.S. Obesity Epidemic. And Jim, let me say, you don't, don't want to read that before lunch. Because okay. I, I was going to go with a with a, uh, a turkey sandwich with extra mayo, and I ended up with a fruit salad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. That's going to come on. Anyway, uh, Doctors Young and Nestle compared 1970s and modern-day portion sizes across a wide variety of restaurant types, from fast food to what they refer to as family-type establishments. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they note is that the average size of a steak has increased by 224%. Since the 1970s. And, and remember, for those of you, you know, sort of like, like me who haven't had their coffee in the morning and are trying to do the math, a 100% increase means double. So 224% is more than triple the size, right? Holy cow. Yeah, it's why, I know. It's why, it's why I mentioned it, right? right? Mm-hmm. So if you multiply that $5.35 filet by 2.24, which is 224%, you get a price of eleven seventy six, And adjusting for inflation, that's just under $62 in modern currency. And I note that the Blue Bayou Dinner menu lists the filet today with sides and a salad for $58. So Ooh. so Mandy's explanation of portion sizes seems to make the most sense. Thank you, Mandy. Wow. That was great. I, I, I know. Thank you, Mandy. Holy cow. Fascinating. It takes a village, Jim, to read a menu. It does. It does. All right. Last question was uh, <laughs> our friend Tom Beadle writes in with a question about booking DVC at Alani. He's having some mm-hmm. trouble. So here it is. He says, do you guys have any insight into how to pay cash for a DVC stay at Alani? I've been trying to book a set of three rooms for the last week of June, 2024. Mm-hmm. Every day, the DVC website shows DVC rooms at Alani available for one day beyond the seven-month window. So I get up at 4 a.m. Pacific to try and book at 8 a.m. Eastern. I check an hour before the window opens, and there are rooms available for the days I want. But then at precisely 7.59 a.m. Eastern, I refresh the page and everything is gone. Is Disney taking these rooms out of inventory at the last minute so they can book for cash? Or do travel agents or someone else get a head start on booking at DVC resorts? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that DVC would take the inventory out at the last second mm-hmm. because any sort of minor technical issue or slowdown would mm-hmm. then make those rooms available to the public. So they're probably doing it at night. And I think it's, uh, I think they actually do the conversion within 30 to 90 days anyway. So mm-hmm. someone who listens to the show who works at DVC can write in to clarify. I, you know, I really think, Jim, that Alani rooms are just super competitive. The one thing I would suggest to Tom, and I say this because as we speak, I'm trying to adjust the mechanical time movement on my grandfather clock, um, is that your computer's time is up to date with time.gov, which is NIST's 
um, version of time. And also check to see what the difference is between what Disney thinks the time is and time.gov because it's typically off by, you know, up to like 20 seconds or so. So try that, Tom, and, uh, and get back to us. Yeah. Okay. Then I'd love to hear what, what, what happens there. But Awesome. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us how Disney has developed the California Screaming Coaster over the years at Disney California Adventure. We'll be right back. My poor brother, Peter. He was born roughly two weeks after Christmas, which means when his birthday rolls around in the early part of January, he never gets a really great gift. Because of, I'm not sure why exactly. We all overspent for the holidays, or maybe nobody wants to go back to the mall because of the lousy weather. Whatever the reason, I'm determined to do right by my little brother this year, which is why I'm getting Peter StoryWorth. StoryWorth is that online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. How does StoryWorth work, you ask? It's simple, really. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you never thought to ask, like, have you ever found out something you wished you had never known? Or uh, what was your first date with your spouse like? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all of your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. My mom has the StoryWorth book that we had made for her a few years back, prominently displayed on the coffee table in my childhood home. I was just paging through that thing, and, well, you know that, what was your first date like with your spouse question? Well, in my mom's case, for her first date with my dad, he took her to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This would have been when that Disney animated film was re-released to theaters in February of 1952, and I guess my mom must have liked that movie because she and my dad were married in December of the following year while he was on leave from the Marine Corps. With StoryWorth, I am giving those I love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to StoryWorth.com slash Disney Dish and save $10 on your first purchase. Again, that's StoryWorth.com slash Disney Dish to save $10 on your first purchase. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. And we're back. All right, Jim, it is January 8th. Yep. And this date has particular significance for parts of Disney California Adventure, right? It does. It does. Because it was six years ago today in uh, 2018 that California Screaming closed at Paradise Pier at, at, at DCA. And uh, this part of, of Disneyland Resort Second Gate was about to be transformed into Pixar Pier. And uh, a key component of that project was changing California Screaming, which, by the way, Len, when it first opened in February 2001, was the fourth longest coaster in the world, uh, over wow. just over 6,000 feet in length. It, it's now the the eighth longest coaster, because, uh, you know, the faster things have come along. But still, I mean, it's an impressive coaster, and it's a, it's a delightfully long ride. It is, it is. And anyway, the, the, the goal here was to change California Screaming into the Incredicoaster, which course is uh themed around the characters and the settings from brad bird's incredibles movies and by the way also worth noting here that the incredicoaster opened the dca on june 23rd 2018 which was just eight days after the incredibles 2 opened in theaters clearly those people didn't work on tron okay <laughs> can, no, no, can, no. can we get you guys to work on that magic kingdom expansion that's rumored to happen okay yeah, all right, go ahead. you know it, 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 Steady diet of double cappuccinos. So um, right. anyway, um, uh, we're not here to talk about the the Incredibles movies. Uh, you know, although it's worth noting that the first Incredibles movie, uh, directed by Brad Bird, did take home that year's Oscar for best mm. animated feature. But uh, we're here today to talk about how a cutting edge coaster has always been part of uh, the plans for the Disneyland Resort Second Gate, even when that theme park. Uh, being built in the Disneyland, uh, Disneyland's old parking lot wasn't supposed to be California Adventure. Really? So, so every version of the second gate in Disneyland had a thrill coaster. It did. It did. And oh, okay. uh, to be specific, we're we're going to talk a little bit right now about Westcott, the West mm -hmm. Coast version of Epcot Center. 
Uh, project was originally announced in May of 1991. It was a $3 billion effort to transform uh, the Disneyland theme park into a destination resort like the one uh, Disney runs in Florida. Um, very ambitious project. Uh, went through a couple of different iterations, Len, before it was mm-hmm. canceled uh, 19 years ago this month. In fact, uh, January 1995. And what was especially interesting is they had a very different take on how to do World Showcase. It wasn't going to be individual countries, but rather regions of the world. So, uh, in fact, uh, if you picture the way you walk into, uh, uh, you know, a California Adventure today through Buena Vista Street, you mm-hmm. would have entered through the Americas. And mm-hmm. then... Uh, if you proceeded into the park in a, uh, clockwise uh, d- direction, uh, to your left would have been Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. you would have, if you continued along to the back of the park, there would have been Asia. And then finally at kind of the three to six o'clock PM on the, the watch race, you would have had Africa. Um, but so the thing, the thing I love about this, Jim, is that the idea didn't die, but got implemented in animal kingdom seven years later. It did. It did. Now, if we we touch base on the Asia section, uh, the big thrill ride for this area was called Ride the Dragon, which was going to be a coaster. And what's fascinating to me, Len, is that Ride the Coaster was basically going to be built where the Incredicoaster is today, in the southeastern corner of the old Disneyland parking lot. And we know this because back in the summer of 1994, Tony Baxter as part of a presentation that he gave at the National Fantasy Fan Club's annual convention. Uh, Tony, by the way, was the creative lead on Westcott. Uh, And Baxter described how the Ride the Dragon coaster would have been close to the Emerald Hotel in Anaheim. And just in case you're wondering, uh, the Emerald Hotel in Anaheim was purchased by the Walt Disney Company in October of 1995, a year and change after Tony spoke at the NFFC. And it's had a number of different names uh, since then. It was the Disneyland Pacific Hotel. It was the Mm -hmm. Paradise Pier Hotel. And as of January 30th of this year, uh, this 481-room resort will be known as the Pixar Place Hotel. So officially opening tail end of this month. If a piece of lodging property could be in the witness protection program, I think it's it's this hotel. It, 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 so, yeah. so what is that? That's that's like a name change every six years. Yeah, but but they're hoping this one sticks. All right. Anyway, Ride the Dragon basically occupied the same spot in Westcott where Incredicoaster sits today, uh, which cozies up against a residential neighborhood, which means in order to be a good neighbor. <laughs> I'm just thinking of like, you know, you could have like a, a fire breathing dragon effect that just mows people's lawns as they go by. There you go. We'll do a little pruning for you while we're at it. But um, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. But again, you know, they wanted to be a good neighbor. Disney needed to do some noise mitigation here. So sure. uh, with California Screaming and the Incredicoaster, Disney handled this by adding sound tubes. Those are those big blue things that you zoom through. I want to say yeah. there's three of them on the coaster today. Yep. Uh, they direct the guest screams back into DCA rather than allowing that noise to, to travel out of the park and into the residential neighborhood. but And so um, so they, they were picking tubes over, like, walls, I guess, because walls would have to been super high? Well, the interesting thing about the, the noise tubes is you can shape them and direct them in such a way that they send the screams back into the park itself rather than... Um, traveling out outside of the park and again disrupting oh, the neighborhood but that's actually a cool effect for uh, both the guests around the ride and uh, people on the ride right because it uh, it amplifies the uh, the the sensa- the excitement sensation while you're on the ride and it actually draws people towards the attraction well now the speaking of, of you know of people inside the park and and attracting your attention uh, back in the early 1990s, again, when, when Westcott, you know, was initially being designed for the Disneyland Resort, Ride the Dragon I had a really kind of different solution when it came to noise mitigation. The story conceit of Ride the Dragon is different depending on which version of, of, of a, or Westcott we're talking about here. Version 1.0 would have had your coaster car traveling along the Great Wall of China, whereas version 2.0 would have had your coaster Zooming through the peaks and valleys of the Dragon Teeth mountain range. 
which is uh, located in China's southernmost province along the Yangtze River. Oh yeah, this is uh, this is actually mentioned in the uh, Wonders of China film. Yeah, th- there we go. Okay, so your ride vehicle was supposed to be modeled after a traditional Chinese parade dragon, the ones you see at seasonal festivals and celebrations like Chinese New Year. And those have that red silk fabric component. Oh, so it'd be like uh, partially covered? Well, yeah, but here's where it gets <sighs> fascinating. Okay, at the point where the uh, the ride the dragon would have gotten high enough in the air, uh, you know, uh, so that... Uh, guests would have been able to see the Emerald Hotel across mm. the way. Again, Pixar Place Hotel. And then the screams of the guests at that height would have potentially traveled into the residential neighborhood. This is where the red fabric was supposed to have basically flown over the guest compartment and completely enclose you for a moment. In fact, uh, Tony described it sort of like the wormhole effect from uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. And uh, but but if you were on the ground looking up at the coaster, what you would have then seen at that time is like that looks exactly like a Chinese dragon in a parade. You know, just sort of you know the, the that full length body and the yeah, head. The yeah, front. yeah, yeah. No, it would that, have been. That's kind of a great idea. I mean, it, it's a, it, it, it was. Yeah, really, um, really interesting idea for a ride concept. Okay. Yeah, but but again, interesting idea. Didn't get built because Westcott, again, got canceled January of 1995. And development of California Venture begins in earnest August of that same year, 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, DC doesn't officially get announced till July 17th of the following year, Disneyland's 41st birthday. And this version is a $1.4 billion uh, project versus the $3 billion Westcott. Um, and, but at the same time, because Disney didn't want to waste all of the survey work that had been done previously for Ride the Dragon, California Screaming, uh, which by the way, for a while then was known as Wipeout was basically built in the same spot. Now, in this case, uh, the conceit for this part of the second gate of, uh, for Disneyland celebrates a very specific time, uh, for the California amusement piers, the 1920s. Uh, right after a lot of these places were built and were brand spandy oh. new, okay. rather than the 30s. Uh, again, <laughs> a theme park devoted to the Great Depression. Hooverville. There we go. Welcome to Hooverville. Right. <laughs> yeah. So now Tim Delaney uh, was put in part of, of Paradise Pier. And he sat down with Pat Doyle, who was a principal mechanical engineer at WDI. And they talked specifics about this coaster. They They... they they wanted it to fit the design aesthetics of this side of the park. Um, so it needed to look like a classic wooden coaster, but obviously to fill, uh, to, to please coaster fans as well as thrill ride junkies, needed to be a steel coaster. Yeah. I don't, we've, have we ever talked about the ride experience differences between <sighs> an old wooden coaster and a modern steel coaster? Because I've been on mm-hmm. older wooden coasters, like in, in Europe and stuff. And yep. It might be great when you're a kid, but yep. as soon as you start having a favorite pair of shoes, Jim, uh, you're at the age where you should not be riding old wooden roller coasters because it is it it'll shake your feelings loose from your teeth. Well, you know, it's so interesting you say this. Just this past summer, Nancy and I went to Dorney Park here, uh, and oh my god, you know that they, they yeah. have one of the oldest, you know the longest operating wooden coasters in the country and what you describe to a T, I mean, I, I know my kidneys change places, you know, oh, just, yeah, uh, no. yeah. you know, just, just, just from the rattling, you know, it's a, all right, you go left, I go right. I went on a wild mouse mm-hmm. in Blackpool one time, an old, you know, wooden roller coaster, which mm-hmm. is basically you're in a wooden bathtub. I'm not mm-hmm. exaggerating mm-hmm. that goes around on a track, but it doesn't, the track doesn't tilt. Mm-hmm. So you don't bank into the turns. You just get slammed into the side. And I got out of the end of this, and and I actually thought to myself, like, will I ever be able to stand up straight again? Like, it was, like, I'm going to walk around like a stooped man here. Anyway. All right. Yeah, anyway, go ahead. And, and, all right. So, all right, but again. Has to be a modern coaster. Has to be yeah, modern. Yeah. And, okay. and I, so I, I have a quote here. Uh, Tim Delaney did an interview with LaughingPlace.com just ahead of California Adventure opening in February of 2001. He said, we knew that the backbone of this entire land, this whole district, was going to be the coaster. And so- Pat Doyle and I designed the thing from scratch. We literally wrote a script about how we wanted the coaster to go, where the high spots were, where the intensity was. We actually designed it so that guests could 
almost relaxes their their post coaster car pass through certain areas but Mm. but at the same time again because they wanted a modern coaster this thing launches uh using 306 linear induction motors wow uh and so i mean again you know from your 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 time in in the uk visiting the parks over there that you know you know again you're on a wooden coaster you get that clack 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 yeah as you go up the load hill you know uh whereas with California screaming, you go from zero to fifty-five miles an hour in just four seconds. You are, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a launch coaster. Yeah, that's it exactly. You are suddenly twelve stories up and then sent straight down a hundred and eight foot long drop at fifty degrees. It sounds like the beginning of a really fun math problem. It's a hundred and eight <laughs> foot drop. It's at a fifty degree angle. <laughs> and how long do you fill your adult diaper? Uh, anyway, <laughs> exactly. so all right. Now the other thing that that. Delaney and Doyle wanted California to do different than any other Disney coaster is they wanted it to stop outside. Now, albeit briefly, so that the people who were passing by as they walked along the boardwalk could look down at the people, you know, uh, on California Street, see their faces just before they would then launch at 55 miles an hour. Is this an example of the uh, solving the Chinese grandmother problem? <laughs> Those of you who haven't are familiar with the term um, over mm-hmm. on Patreon, mm-hmm. we're doing a series with Imagineer Jim Scholl, mm-hmm. who helped design you know the parks. And one of the things that he said is when you're designing a ride, mm-hmm. you have to give guests some indication of the experience they're in for. And they oh, yeah. Disney learned this the hard way mm-hmm. when they opened up Space Mountain in China, mm-hmm. because multi generational families would go in, you know, uh, mom, dad, kids, grandparents, and not knowing what Space Mountain was. And grandma would get on the ride, you know, because at the at the loading station, you see that it's a slow-moving ride. And, you know, and then grandma would be launched into space coming out, you know, grandpa's clutching his heart and whatnot. And and so, yeah, that's a problem, right? So you have to explain to people what they're getting themselves into. Well, I, and the other aspect, I think, what was really fun about California Screaming is if you're on the coaster and you're sitting on the right side and you, you know, you're looking at what you're about to be launched into – you know, you'd suddenly get distracted because you were getting hit with water. From the lagoon. Uh, was there a wave machine? There was actually a wave machine. Oh, uh, you okay. know, they, they uh, in fact, a, a rather sophisticated one that, like, you know, that there was a 3.5 uh, acre uh, uh, Paradise Bay. Uh, that, mm-hmm. uh, what is that? Uh, 1.5 million gallon. But um, they would actually take the, the wind that was going on at the time into account and and create the equivalent of surf and because it's so, a it's a relatively open space yeah the the amount of wind that would uh, affect the the surface is not insubstantial yeah. by the way Jim do you think that here's an idea that I uh, that I just had I think that internally Disney should call every wave machine that it creates from now on the mm-hmm. Nunes three thousand <laughs> I I I I I heartily <laughs> reinforce that recommendation all right go okay. Ahead. All right, so anyway, again, as we mentioned previously, Disneyland Resort Second Gate opens February 2001. Doesn't exactly set the world on fire. No. Uh, 2007, Imagineering begins having conversations about how to make DCA more like Disneyland Park. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, the punch list is needs more characters, needs better sense of space and time. So um, they begin to develop a Disney character-based overlay for this particular attraction at California Adventure. I want to stress here, not the Incredibles, but rather the Disney villains. And, oh, okay, okay now, right. uh, now, those of you who got into the Blue Sky Cellar uh, at DCA, which was mm. sort of the preview center for, for DCA 2.0, there was art on display there for a very short amount of time. That sort of gave a window into what Disney was thinking of doing with the Disney villains coaster. And again, as Lynn just mentioned, Jim Shul, who we're working with on on the Disney Pack project, he uh, kind of thanks to him for, for filling in some of the holes here. But okay, so picture this: you go to enter Paradise Pier, uh, which, by the way, uh, for this iteration, has been renamed the Bayside Boardwalk, and you're on that bridge uh, that's just to the left of DCA's old Pacific uh, Wharf area, yeah. the the area sort of like the. Now- the- yeah, the main the main way to walk in. Yeah, there we go. Uh, you know, uh, just next now to what's now San Francisco, and uh, to your right is the restaurant that once upon a time was Avalon Cove, then Ariel's Grotto, and now the Lamplighter Lounge. And 
directly in front of you, Len, is a giant stylized head of Ursula the Sea Witch from The Little Mermaid. I'm in. 100%. I'm in. I'm in. Well, no, no. It, it, it's better. She's flanked by stylized versions of her tentacles, and the only way in to this part of the park is you have to walk into Ursula's mouth. So Take my yeah. money now, Jim. Take my money now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so so picture this, folks. You're walking down the ramp on the boardwalk, which leads to California Screaming. But in front of you, you now see the Disney Villains Funhouse, um, which, by the way, fans of classic New England theme parks will be happy to know, was supposed to have been inspired by the Funhouse at Whalen Park in Lunenburg, Massachusetts, uh, operated from 1893 through 2000. Now, Len, just as we mentioned that there were two versions of Westcott, there were actually two different versions of the Disney villains Funhouse. Now one version would have been a standalone attraction in and of itself. While the other version of the Disney villains Funhouse would have served just as the queue space for the Reese theme California adventure. And which now has been turned into a celebration of the Disney villains. Now, Previously in today's show, we've talked about those sound tubes, the things that were used for noise mitigation to prevent, you know, screams leaking into the residential area. Uh, in Credit Coaster, now they use these spaces for story elements. You know, uh, we've been told, you know, going through the queue that Jack Jack's powers are out of control. So we get to our first sound tube. You know, we see Dash trying to control his little brother with super speed. Second sound tube, we see Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl trying to use their powers to rein in this, you know, this toddler. And then finally, last uh, sound tube, we see Jack-Jack's sister, Violet, trying to contain him in a force field. And only as we come back into the station to see Edna Mode has come to the rescue and is is corralled Jack-Jack using a chocolate cookie num-num. Um, <laughs> where, uh, when California... It, Screaming was supposed to be Disney villains themed. Um, those three scream tunnels, Len, were supposed to be decorated in a way. Well, first of all, you were going to launch when, when again, your, your Bayside at, uh, along Paradise B, you launch into the mouth of Maleficent as the dragon from Sleeping Beauty. All right. Wow. All right. Further on, on the same attraction, you encounter another sound tube. Only now it's Jafar as the giant cobra from Aladdin. And and then the final sound tube that you encounter is Ka from the Jungle Book with his mouth open, only he's got those crazy colored hypnotic eyes. Spiral hypnotic eyes. I can see it. I can see it. And and now in between all of these points, you would have also passed other oversized icons uh, keying off of the Disney villains. There would have been a, a giant hook at one point representing Captain Oak from Peter Pan. Likewise, in one of the uh, the turnarounds, uh, you would have had a giant poison apple sitting there representing the evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And, um, and by the way, fun fact, folks, if you visit... One Man's Dream, the, the exhibit at Disney's Hollywood studio, the Walt Disney World Resort today, and you go to check out the model of Paradise Pier 2.0 that's on display there, take a close look at the coaster cars that are on the track. They're painted purple. And that's because they were painted that color when the Disney villains coaster idea was presented to Disney management back in early 2008. So, so the idea changed, but they didn't go back and repaint the, uh, the model they coasters. Didn't, that's, they didn't. that's awesome. That's not, you know, all right. Um, that's kind of great. It's, it's, it shows how the, uh, the idea evolved. I love it. Sounds like a great idea. Why wasn't it done? Uh, look, hard reality, a uh, company was going to spend 1.1 billion for the redo of DCA. And that amount of money as big as it was could only go so far. And, uh, and and the other hard reality here is that people were still lining up for California Adventure. In fact, uh, that attraction, uh, when it's running six trains, can can handle 2,400 guests an hour, uh, 2,000 when they're only running five trains. And while a Disney villain-themed overlay would have made the attraction better, obviously, wasn't necessary. I mean, it wasn't going to... Yeah, people were still lining up. You're not going to change the uh, the number of people who can ride the ride or it's a, it's appeal to a wider audience, right? Yeah. So the money's better spent somewhere else. And, and also worth noting here that the same thing happened with Grizzly River Run. The Imagineers originally wanted to upgrade that attraction as well. They were going to put all sorts of animatronics along the riverbanks, 
with the idea that this DCA attraction would then become the next generation of Disneyland's mind train through nature's wonderland. And what, but here's the thing, Len, people were already lining up, especially during the hot summer months, uh, to go on Grizzly River Run, you know, and so, and, and with that 1.1 billion only able to go so far, they made the decision that the, that money would be much better spent on Cars Land and redoing the entrance, putting in uh, Point of Vista Street. I understand the idea and I agree with it in this specific case. The, uh, the one thing I would say is, uh, is this, when was the last time you went on Grizzly River Run? Yeah, I know. Yeah, we don't, we don't go on it because it's not repeatable. And I think, uh, you know, Disney, if they Disney upgraded it somehow, you would draw more people uh, back into it. It's just not, uh, it's just not a repeatable ride the way it is right now. And you, you and I tend to tend to visit during winter anyway, when it's either closed or it's super cold and there's no point in going. I still think there's some added value to be obtained there with not a terrible amount of money. It's interesting that, that you note that because remember, DCA 2.0 opens uh, June of 2012 after five years of work. Right. Whereas DCA 3.0 is announced in 2017, and that's when Paradise Pier becomes Pixar Pier, and right. uh, a Bugs Land gets changed to Avengers Campus. And, and by the way, it's worth noting that we lose one Pixar-themed area for the park, but we did get you know a para, you know Paradise Pier became Pixar Pier. And I just want to throw this out to um, to our listeners. I mean. Which of these did you prefer? Did, did you prefer the, the original classic California Screamin', or are you a fan of the Incredicoaster, or just laying it out there, you know, would it have made a difference if, the, if Disney had, in fact, gone with the Disney villains-themed idea, uh, yeah. or hell, even, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Ride the Dragon, so... That's a great question. So uh, if people want to write in and tell us which uh, version they prefer, we'll, uh, we'll definitely look at those comments and read the best ones. I don't know that, you know, Ride to the Dragon probably wouldn't work now, but, uh, you know, you could still do a Pixar villains themed coaster, oh. right? There's Pixar has enough movies right now with enough villains that are recognizable that you could, that, you could pull it off in the next retheming. Yeah. That's intriguing. Okay. Got to keep things fresh, Jim. Got to keep things fresh. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> great, great, uh, mm. great talk. That's uh, that was super fun. No, no, no. Glad you liked it. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show by subscribing over at patreon.com slash jimhailmedia, where we're posting exclusive shows every week. Last week's show had Disney Imagineer Jim Shule answering your questions. Check it out at patreon.com slash jimhailmedia. On next week's show, Jim tells us how Space Mountain became Ghost Galaxy and other themes with Imagineer Jim Shule. You can find more of Jim at jimhailmedia.com and more of me, lenittouringplans.com. We're produced spectacularly by Eric Hersey, whose Sundance Film Festival documentary, Saving Matt Damon, which chronicles what it'd really take to rescue Matt Damon in Saving Private Ryan, The Martian, and Intercellar, premieres next Thursday, January 18th, at the Prospector Square Theater, that's on Sidewinder Drive, in beautiful downtown Park City, Utah. While Eric's doing that, please go into iTunes and write our show, and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.